Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Bethany Monet, Jocelyn Andrade, and Michaela Poso talk about reimagining education through arts and activism, addressing linguistic discrimination, and valuing linguistic diversity, multimodality, and the Latinx Gen Project. Bethany Monet is a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania, where she studies youth writing and media-making practices and cultivates critical approaches to digital literacy using participatory, multimodal methodologies. She has taught first-year writing classes for multilingual students and graduate-level courses on digital literacies, and she has worked with first-generation to college high schoolers and college bridge programs. She is currently completing her dissertation, which is a participatory ethnographic study of the multimodal and multilingual literacies of first-generation Latinx students transitioning to college. Her publications can be found in Computers and Composition, Kairos, and Qualitative Research, as well as several edited collections and her interactive exploration of interface literacy, screen reading, won the Kairos 2021 Best Web Text Award. Jocelyn Andrade is a second-year college student and first-generation student and immigrant. She is currently attending George Mason University where she is pursuing a double major in psychology and criminology with a concentration in forensic psychology. In addition to this, she is passionate about art and education. Her passion for education is seen through her work as a mentor in a college bridge program for first-generation students like herself. Michaela Poso is a second-year sociology student at George Mason University. She is a collaborator of the Latinx Gen Collective, which focuses on highlighting issues of educational inequity as well as the college transition through the lens of first-generation Latinx youth. She is an amateur poet and interested in philosophy and politics. Among the many issues she feels strongly about, she is particularly passionate about economic inequality and its effects on educational equity, voting access, and immigrant rights. Bethany, Jocelyn, and Michaela, thanks so much for joining us. So you all co-authored a piece in Perspectives in Urban Education called Beyond Words. Reimagining Education Through Art and Activism. Can you talk to me more about this article and what you're encouraging teachers and students to consider as it relates to education and literacy through art and activism? And I think the article is is a good place to begin this conversation because it represents what we've been trying to do as a research collective on a couple of different levels. So um, Josephine, Micaela, and I are working alongside uh, another couple, actually I think, how many more of us are there? There's six others, seven others, uh, students uh, all from Latinx families um, who, and all of whom are gonna be the first in their family or who are now the first in their family to attend college. And we kind of came together uh, in the context of a college bridge program where I was a writing teacher and a volunteer and um, these students were enrolled uh, in order to get support in transitioning to and through college. I I invited these students to join me in a research project uh, in which I wanted to really investigate how students experience the transition from high school to college, particularly as it relates to their literacy practices as someone who was a first year writing teacher for many years and is now a PhD student, like looking at differences in secondary and post-secondary literacy instruction I was really interested in in asking these questions in collaborations with students themselves throughout their actual college transition process. And so we came together to to do this research work, um, but it was also really important for me for students to be able to 
tell these stories about their college transition in their own words and through modalities that were meaningful to them and for audiences other than academics, other than other researchers, you know? And so what we decided to do is to also create a web series, which we're going to probably talk about, you know, more as this conversation unfolds, where students were documenting their transition experiences through film and putting those short films online on a YouTube channel. So back to your original question about the article that we wrote, um, this opportunity came along as we were working on this web series. And as I was like interviewing them and engaging in this ethnographic research, uh, I was offered an opportunity to contribute to this special issue of the journal Perspectives in Urban Education. And I thought, oh, what a great way to like extend our collaborative research, you know, into a different, a different space. And so I asked the students I was working with if they wanted to collaborate with me on the article. Um, and then we went through kind of a collaborative writing process uh, with Michaela, Joseline, and our, our other co-author, Perla Gonzalez, who wasn't able to be here today. It started with conversations, right? So we got together on a Zoom call and we started talking about like, what do we care about? Um, what are our lived experiences as students, as teachers, like have to teach us about um, what matters in an educational context and how we can make education more equitable and more accessible. That led us to a lot of conversations around embracing linguistic diversity in classrooms and really celebrating it um, and also embracing and celebrating artistic expression and non-alphabetic forms of literacy and multimodal literacy practices. And so we really took up that aspect of multimodality and arts-based expression we're lucky enough that Jocelyn and Perla and Gaila are all also incredibly talented artists. And I have a background in art and design as well. And so what we tried to do was to infuse our artistic practices into that article and to also infuse storytelling as a legitimate form of academic research and knowledge production. And so it's really kind of a mosaic of poetry and storytelling and personal narrative and painting and calligraphy, uh, as well as, you know, more traditional academic, academic writing practices. And what we wanted to do with bringing all these things together is show the value of creating space for different types of stories, different types of um, languages, different types of forms of expression in the process of knowledge production in the hopes that that would inspire teachers to also incorporate and value and really amplify these diverse ways of knowing and doing and speaking. Uh, in their classrooms as well. In this article, you write, quote, one of the problems we believe it is important to address in the current educational landscape is the issue of linguistic discrimination in schools and in society as a whole, which is connected to the racialization of students and racism within schools, end quote. You also reflect on your own stories and experiences in education. Can you talk about the importance of decentering whiteness and standardized English in classrooms, and how teachers might curate a space that values linguistic diversity. When we when we're talking about like decentering whiteness and also like challenging standardized English in the classroom, we're really what we're doing is we're trying to move away from needing to constantly legitimize different dialects and also challenge that there is a hierarchy of languages where usually standardized English is on top. And I think to do this, when we talk about this, is we need to actively infuse and advocate for language diversity within the curriculum and where we posit the curriculum or where we posit people of color and their dialects, both 
AAVE and Spanglish as not just important for their stories and content, but are rich with like literary analysis. Um, I think by moving away from viewing language as needing to be so prescriptive, we also challenge the different associations of what is intelligent, what is proper, and what is objective. Because I think inherent to the way that we view standardized English, we see it as something that is objectively right. And who said that? Who said that it needed to be that way? And I think by centering and by centering different dialects and viewing language differently, we see it as more fluid. And I guess ultimately what I'm saying is that our forms of, of expression are legitimate. Uh, they have their own grammatical rules. And like I said, rich with um, literary analysis and things that you can learn so much from within the classroom. Through doing this article together, I think we found that there is no concrete framework. That's the reality. It very much depends on what we are already working with in that already established classroom setting. And not just in the classroom, but also what is going on socially outside of the classroom as well. That plays a huge aspect on how we integrate different dialects, different narratives, different forms of art, and how those groups of students in that community will, will take it. You know, that, that's, so that is very much important before even implementing anything. Having a strong understanding of what your community is, um, the values that is made up within your community, as well as um, what type of environment as you as an educator, what do you provide? Uh, what do you cultivate? Um, and then through that, taking the step, as we said in, in the article, as well as doing a lot of um, personal reflection uh, with, with your students. I, I've realized through my time in going in higher education, you know, past high school, um, that I didn't reflect on identities that I knew that they were there, but nobody really took the time to really form um, an environment for me to reflect on it. I didn't realize how important it was to be a Latinx first-generation student until they asked me in my college application and I was like, oh, I think I have an answer, you know? We don't realize how, how important it is to reflect on these aspects of our life and how they intertwine um, with our education as well as us as a community socially as well. Um, but I think it's important to do uh, a lot of assessment of the already established community, the classroom setting, um, and by doing so, create a specific plan, which is easier said than done. I do not think that we will find a concrete framework ever because it is it, there's so many other aspects that come into play. But in general, as educators, by assessing the environment, you know, and by creating a customizable educational curriculum for your students and picking out, say, what needs more representation, different types of dialects, works of art, and through that, just creating, cultivating a space for your students to explore those different pieces of art, different forms of human expression. I feel like that would be a loose <laughs> framework to go about. Bethany, I know your interests are also in digital literacies and multimodality. 
What do you think are some of the affordances of centering multimodality in classes? And how do these different modes and mediums help you as a teacher cultivate learning? You know, based on my own teaching history, right, I began implementing like a multimodal assignment into my first year composition classroom early, early on in in my experiences as a a teacher. And and what I noticed over time was like the more freedom I gave students within that assignment, um, the more like the, the richer the learning outcomes tended to be. Right. And so you know, I started off with like, oh, let's all create a video and like, let's all use iMovie to do that. And I'll bring in like a library, uh, you know, an iMovie specialist from the library and we'll go through these tutorials together. Um, but what I began to realize over time is that students were creating all kinds of um, multimodal and digital texts on their own and through a variety of tools that I didn't know about and didn't have access to or didn't have knowledge of, um, but they did. And so by giving kind of more freedom and more choice in those types of assignments, then students could choose a tool or choose the medium or choose a platform that they were already familiar with. And then they could bring that knowledge set into the classroom and then just work on refining it using some of the, the skills we've been practicing around like rhetorical awareness or, you know, organization or coherence or, or whatever those kind of foundational like compositional uh, skills that we've been practicing might be. Opening up to more choice was one thing that was kind of transformative in the way that I approached multimodal assignments in my own composition classroom. Emphasizing risk and creativity um, as a key component of learning with these technologies. And that ties directly into, I know you think a lot about assessment, Shane, right? And so Um, There have to be assessment frameworks in place that encourage risk-taking and that encourage creativity in order for anyone to feel comfortable like trying to learn a new mode of expression, right? And so um, I think that they have to be safe and secure and knowing that they're not going to be penalized for not knowing how to do that thing, but for rather they're going to be rewarded for trying to learn how to do that thing. Digital literacies and multimodality and different types of forms of artistic and non-alphabetic expression have really been transformative in my practice as a researcher as well. Michaela, what do you feel like are some benefits to multimodality, maybe from a a research perspective? When it comes to research, I feel like when we incorporate multimodality, when we do even participatory research, we're really like expanding access um, and also centering the you know, the groups that we're actually analyzing and that we're trying to say or make conclusions or say something about, right? And I feel like sometimes when it comes to research, there's always this kind of distance and there's always like this disconnect between the researchers and then the people who are being researched. And I think multimodality and even participatory research kind of helps create that gap where it doesn't have to be that way, where key figures in the research analysis and uh, knowledge production and all of that. And it has been transformative in my experience with being a part of this research project because it has allowed me to not only have a lot of agency, but also enter in spaces that usually I wouldn't be able to enter, like writing a research article and having that published, you know, also or also legitimizing the fact that my story and how I analyze my story and how I analyze, I guess, our group stories is legitimate research. And then also 
you know, presenting those findings at academic conferences, which you don't really see that many either, you know, undergraduate researchers, but then also just people of color. So I think there is more benefit and more richness in having in incorporating the communities that we are hoping to help and or support or learn from. We come with like more richer conclusions about things because it's coming from the people. That's kind of the way that I see it. And in this project specifically, like we're not trying to make overarching generalizations about anything really. You can't, that would be probably unethical. Um, but we're trying to kind of show certain patterns that we see and that we notice through our own experiences, but also in conversations with each other. Um, and that's what we're like pointing out. We're saying, hey, like we see this pattern and um, the process of like conversing and discussing um, and seeing those, I guess, similarities in our conversations, that is, that process, I think it's, it's something that we actively try to cultivate and I think is important. One thing I would just say is that, you know, I'm also a graduate student, right? I'm finishing my PhD, I'm still learning what research is and can be, right? And, and something I'm always careful to think about and to um, put forward is that like, even though I do participatory research, like I, like the, I don't think that that's the only way to be an ethical researcher, right? Like I think that there are, are ways that ethnography, that large scale statistical analyses can also be, you know, ethical and are important and, you know, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, never want to say that like, this is, you know, this is it, this is how all research should be or all research should look or this is the only way to do research ethically. Um, but I think that for the context of the questions that we were asking together um, and the lived experiences that we did and did not share, you know, that working together to do collective theorizing to create knowledge through art, through media, through video, through conversation, through storytelling, uh, was what what worked for us, and is something that we're you know hoping to to show and to model for, for other people. Jocelyn, let's talk about the Latinx Gen project and web series. What were the motivations behind this project, and what are its goals and aims? So you can find us on YouTube. Um, we are Latinx Gen. Um, it is spelled L-A-T-I-N-X-T space G-E-N. Um, essentially, it um, consists of videos, small narratives or large, regarding our transition from high school to college. Um, it views different aspects of that transition, you know, in a collective light or just an individual one. When we originally got together, and uh, I remember Bethany asking us, like, what, what do you guys want out of this? Like, what information do you want um, through our videos to shine through? To what audiences? What how will this benefit you as the person who's creating it, um, us as a group? And through our time together, you know, researching, creating videos, presenting at various, you know, conferences and universities, we always come with the same main points that, one, we want to do this for educators, get them, give them an inside look from the student's per perspective of the transition from high school 
to college because there's there's so many things that um that could bring, create gra- gaps unknowingly uh, between the st- teachers and students whether it be the class sizes um not again not allowing uh certain ways of expression to to be like cultivated in the classroom or even allowed you know um because I mean I've had teachers who like if I wanted to say something I mean up here in the DMV like we talk a lot of slang and if I said something they look at me and they're like are you sure that's how you want to express it I'm like I think so (laughs) I can't think of any other way (laughs) so we want it I remember telling this to 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 Bethany like if teachers want to know what's happening in our brains as students what's going through our head through this transition they should be able to get down on our level not even down maybe up I don't know get on our level in general just look at what how we see the world you know take the time to actually learn what we mean what we say why we why we express ourselves the way we do and maybe perhaps the education the knowledge production that that occurs in a classroom setting will be richer in content, you know, and not just in content, but also when you leave the classroom, what the student takes with them as well as what the teacher takes with them. So that was a that was the main thing when we first started, but we also realized, well, we want this to be a safe haven for also students who have similar identities to us, similar experiences. Let them know that college isn't just a one-way street. There's a lot of things that happen in life, you know? We're human. There's some things that we can't really calculate and that's what college is. It's our transition to adulthood and there's a lot of aspects in our life that we don't really take into consideration. You know, when we are 16 deciding, like, what colleges do I want to apply to? Or 17, you know? Um, A lot happens. And we wanted our videos to show that to students as well as as a way to connect. And then another reason that we later continued, um, I found that a lot of us found this to be something cathartic, just putting our stories out there, sitting down and taking time to create a video expressing what we had gone through and essentially giving us ourselves that space to, to, to be like, hmm, this year was kind of hectic. Maybe we should reflect on it. Maybe there's some nuggets of knowledge in here. You know, process what we've gone through. And so we also found it as something that's important for ourselves. Um, but one thing is for sure is that we chose the platforms that we did because we wanted this to be accessible to, how, to whoever wanted it. To whoever wanted it. We wanted anyone to take, take a look at our videos. And if they resonated gorgeous subscribe you know um but if not well well these are in our narratives and that's another thing um we also chose youtube because it allowed for us to say our stories whether it be collective or individually to have that that platform we have stories in our youtube that i feel like stand way stronger alone they have so much power alone and there are stories that we have that have so much power in its togetherness in our group, you know? Um, but we, we, we really wanted for whoever decided to share their story, whoever decided to publish a video, they had the power on how that story was told. They had a right to their own story, their own experiences, and none of us have to be the ones who validate it. 
it's already valid on its own. Thanks, Bethany, Jocelyn, and Michaela. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.